Welcome to the Truth to Power podcast from Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. These recordings were originally streamed as live webinars where we brought together key people from across the church and society to discuss significant contemporary issues. In this episode, find out about the Ecumenical Accompaniment Programme for Palestine and Israel, which brings people from around the world to the West Bank to serve for three months as human rights monitors. Welcome to this evening of uh, where we're having a webinar on the Ecumenical Accompaniment Programme in Palestine and Israel. We've already had some uh, interesting issues with uh, Jack in the Galilee, you know, having a power outage, and we're hoping and praying, you know, that that uh, that his power remains uh, f- f- with us for over the next hour or so. Um, there's a very good relationship between churches together in Britain and Ireland and the Ecumenical Accompaniment Program in Palestine and Israel. It's a program that's run through the World Council of Churches and we are privileged to play our part in supporting the work that is especially focused through the Friends, through the Quakers in the UK. Tonight we've got two uh, presenters um, and that's Jack Menayer and Matt Cowling who uh, are um, working or have worked with uh, EAPI, with the programme, uh, and they're going to speak to us in a moment, introduce themselves. Um, and the, the, the thing I would say before we begin, that this uh, is a topic, the Middle East is, is a topic that brings forward very um, big responses. And I would ask everyone in their questioning, uh, in their question and answer session, to be respectful um, and to ask questions that are, uh, are appropriate. Um, I'm going to ask Jack and Matt if they just very briefly introduce themselves in sort of 10 or 15 seconds, just say who they are and where they're from. Hello everyone, I'm Jack Bonayer. I'm from Jerusalem originally and I'm the local program coordinator for the YAPI program. Thanks Jack and Matt. Thanks very much, Bob. Um, yes, my name's Matt. Um, I was an ecumenical company earlier this year. Um, I'm in Bedfordshire and uh, yeah, very happy to be here. Thank you. Brilliant. Okay, we're going to have a great evening um, and the guys are going to make uh, some presentations uh, and I hope certainly by 7.30 that we will have lots of time for a question and answer and I will be moderating that session and putting the questions through to Jack and to Matt. So, Jack, I think you're going to go first with your presentation. So uh, please, God, you know that the power stays with you in every sense of the word and that we're able to see your excellent presentation, please. Thank you, Bob. And thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, I'm going to be answering basically two questions about the EAPPI program. The first is, why do we need a program like Uh, EAP in Israel and the Palestinian territories in the first place? And then what are the basics that EAP does? What does EAPPI do? And the context that we're speaking of is the context of a land that more or less throughout um, territorial disputes and conflicts 
should have ended up looking a little bit like this between uh, the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, the Israeli being in dark green and the Palestinian territories sort of meant to be uh, in orange. This is what a lot of people refer to as a two-state solution. However, in 1967, uh, Israel conquered and occupied the orange territories, which is why we refer to them as the occupied Palestinian territories. So just before we jump forward uh, to why we need uh, EAs on the ground, it's important that we ask the question, well, what is an occupation? And an occupation is the effective control by asserting ruling power over a territory, which is not under its formal sovereignty. And oftentimes when an occupation sets out, it sets out with clear, a clear set of goals that it is meant to achieve. So for example, uh, in the picture below, the United States, uh, along with other countries, including the United Kingdom, uh, invaded and occupied Iraq in order to find allegedly weapons of mass destruction. So this is a good example of what a military occupation looks like. However, it's not quite clear in the Palestinian territories. Um, and this is for this reason, a military occupation is meant to be temporary. Now a situation that hasn't been the case. It is generally speaking a legal method in order to achieve goals. It is administrated by a military entity. It is meant to protect the rights and laws of the people that are being occupied and it cannot change the status of the land that it is occupying. So then the question is, well, are the Palestinian territories occupied under international law? And there are 25 Security Council resolutions which reiterate the fact that these territories are indeed occupied. We also have the International Court of Justice, the ICJ advisory opinion on the wall, which states that this land is occupied. So while technically they are occupied, the reality is very different. And in EAPPI, we will oftentimes refer to the, to the situation as not just an occupation, but a de facto annexation. And we'll cover that again in a little bit. The reason why we say it's not really occupied is because of settlements. Settlements are uh, Israeli towns uh, and enclaves that are dotted all across the West Bank territory. This is illegal under international law. And as of right now, there's over half a million settlers living inside the West Bank. Um, this is a map which spreads out the settlement areas. So the blue areas are officially sort of recognized uh, by the State of Israel settlement outpost and the purple ones are unrecognized. Uh, and this is where the more or less 500,000 people live. And this creates a lot of issues as this population is living right next to uh, the Palestinian population. And it's sort of an obstacle to have one cohesive future Palestinian state with so many settlements present. Uh, settlements will oftentimes then restrict the Palestinian population with checkpoints. Most of the checkpoints in the West Bank restrict Palestinians from accessing other Palestinian territory, but there are also checkpoints which restrict, uh, restrict Palestinians from accessing Israel. And this creates quite a few human rights issues. Secondly, there are demolitions and, and uh, property confiscation all across the West Bank, as Palestinians 
in over two thirds of the West Bank must acquire Israeli permission in order to build. 98.4% of these permissions are rejected by the Israeli authorities. Palestinians build anyway, and oftentimes face demolitions and confiscations. Demolitions are also used as collective punishments against the population when there, is, when there are clashes between uh, Israelis and Palestinians. We also see um, the confiscation of uh, medical facilities, uh, whether they be tents or otherwise. Uh, the picture you see right now uh, is the confiscation of a medical tent in the Jordan Valley that was meant to serve particularly rural, uh, the rural population, uh, the rural Palestinians living in the Jordan Valley, who have access to very little healthcare. And this confiscation happened during the corona pandemic. So it's very difficult for Palestinians to have uh, access to their basic rights and needs in this situation. Furthermore, in some of the settlements, there's quite a lot of settler harassment of the Palestinian population. This is oftentimes done under the protection of the Israeli military, as this photo indicates, where settlers will come and disturb Palestinians or attack uh, Palestinians who are taking their uh, sheep to graze in fields, who are uh, picking olives, as is happening right now across all of the West Bank at this time of year. Uh, if Palestinian children are on their way to school, oftentimes you might have uh, settler harassment. And uh, Palestinians don't really have a remedy to this issue. In other words, they can't simply call the police uh, because Palestinian police can't interfere in these situations. Uh, they can't call a Palestinian military as there is none. And oftentimes when they call the Israeli military, it does not help as they are perpetrators oftentimes themselves. Therefore, Palestinians feel very much choked without uh, solutions when they face this type of harassment. We also have uh, oftentimes violent uh, military and police harassment uh, of Palestinians uh, across the West Bank, where again, any attempt to try and uh, find a remedy to an injustice that has taken place is met with very little success through the Israeli uh, court system and otherwise. And this sort of brings us to the situation where the local Palestinian church asked, what can we do when we are facing this type of situation when the uh, both Palestinian Christians and Muslims uh, are coming to the church and saying, can you do something about this type of harassment and violation of human rights. And so the uh, heads of churches, uh, the Palestinian heads of churches came together along with the World Council of Churches and basically said, let's come up with a response that is both based, sorry, both based in human rights and in international law, but is also biblical. And this model was taken as Jesus as an accompanier. And when we read through the New Testament, we see that Jesus accompanied people where they were in their life. He accompanied people that he met as they were going through their daily struggles. He walked shoulder to shoulder with people, whether it was um, uh, uh, lepers or whether it was the Samaritan woman. Uh, Jesus most often accompanied the poor and marginalized. And in this way, Jesus showed solidarity with humanity. Therefore, the EAPPI program is built very much on this, where we try and bring internationals 
who can walk shoulder to shoulder with vulnerable populations and be in solidarity with them and affirm their humanity. So what do EAs do based on this model? Well, as I mentioned, the checkpoints are uh, a major uh, issue for uh, human rights violations. And EAs, or ecumenical accompaniers, will monitor checkpoints to see how soldiers are treating people as they try to go through. And you can see the EA here in the corner, just uh, watching and observing. And what a lot of the local population reported is that if you had an international accompanier present, the soldier would oftentimes change his behavior and treat people perhaps slightly better, um, perhaps will let them go through um, a bit quicker rather than arbitrarily stalling them. And so we have EAs monitoring major checkpoints all across the West Bank. Some of the worst checkpoints that uh, we have will oftentimes reject people because their shoes are too white uh, or they have too many sandwiches in their bag. Or as one of the cases that we recorded um, at, at the end of last year was uh, a man had too many daughters and then he was rejected from going through the checkpoint. So EAs will oftentimes monitor the checkpoint. And this success that we had then expanded to other areas. Uh, there's also school runs where ecumenical accompaniers will uh, for, go with children through checkpoints where their parents might not be allowed to or may not be able to because they have work in other areas. And uh, according to our um, research with the people that we accompany, uh, boys recorded 50% less violent encounters with soldiers and settlers or harassment uh, when they had an EA present and girls recorded 100% less harassment when an EA was present. Sometimes they will be in urban structures like this, but sometimes EAs will accompany children in rural areas where uh, children have to walk very far in order to access the closest school, oftentimes followed by military personnel, which is why we try and have uh, EAs present um, to document and make sure that no harassment takes place. Uh, EAs will also accompany shepherds and agricultural workers as they try and uh, um, uh, they, they try and uh, work with their livelihood. And um, this time of year is particularly sensitive with the olive harvest, uh, which is oftentimes met with severe harassment by settlers. So uh, EAs will oftentimes um, attempt to be there to document and be a deterrent for settlers to harass. Uh, a lot of the information that we acquire through EAs is documented in a database and is shared with stakeholders such as the United Nations and others who can then advocate and use their statistics to shed light on, the, on what goes on uh, under the occupation. Uh, we also support the local church and peace activists, uh, whether they be Israeli, Palestinian, international or otherwise. Um, EAs will also have uh, extensive time to spend with uh, Israeli partners to try to try and learn as much as possible about uh, the Israeli population, the Israeli side, uh, whether this be with the ultra-Orthodox community, with national religious activists, so that when they come home they have as broad a picture as possible about the different types of populations and opinions that we have here in Israel and Palestine. 
Perhaps the most important thing that an ecumenical accompanier does is advocate for a just peace through the experiences that they have here, the things that they witness and document, they're able to carry people's stories and voices back to their home countries in a way that perhaps those voices would not normally reach uh, through the mainstream media. Therefore, the biggest change that we aim for in the long run is advocating for the human rights, for the rights of, pal of vulnerable Palestinian communities and for a just peace for both Israelis and Palestinians. So just some final thoughts. Uh, the EA's first-hand accounts are unique and give insights to the lived experience of people living under occupation. If we want to advocate for a just and peaceful solution, we need to remember the human rights of the people in this land. And if those are not upheld in whatever deal of the century or peace agreement that is made at the high political end, we won't have a real just peace. And lastly, vulnerable Palestinian communities today are under the threat of annexation. Now, there was an announcement by the Israeli government that they were planning on annexing the Jordan Valley, which would have been a huge segment of the West Bank, um, in July. That didn't follow through for a variety of different reasons, which we can go into later. But annexation is still going on today. Palestinians are continuing to lose land. New settlement outposts are appearing on a regular basis with the absence of international protective presence. And there is a real concern that soon any sense of two-state peaceful solution will no longer be possible if Palestinians are annexed into some form of sub-state or under the Israeli authority. Um, Matt is going to share more about this, I'm sure, about his experience of not only witnessing human rights violations and accompanying the, popu uh, the Palestinian population, but also what does creeping annexation look like? What does a de facto annexation, how does that impact the everyday sort of person in the occupied Palestinian territories? So I'll stop here and thank you all for listening. Thank you, Jack. You know, that was an excellent presentation. Um, lots of power, very strong, strong images as well as, uh, you know, strong sentiments and, and strong words. So thank you very much indeed for that. Um, I'm going to ask Matt to, to build on that very solid foundation that Jack has, uh, has provided. So over to you, Jack. Uh, over to you, uh, Matt. Thank you very much, Bob. I hope everyone can see my screen okay now that with my cursor on the right. It's brilliant. Okay, so thanks very much, Jack. Um, Yes, so EAs uh, witness life under occupation. Um, we engage with local Palestinians and Israelis to urge for a just peace. Um, and we do presentations like this in order to change the international community's involvement in the conflict and urge them to act against injustice in the region. Now, I was an ecumenical accompanier um, in January uh, to March this year, based in a place called Tulkarum, which is in the north of the West Bank. You can just see my cursor on the right here. Now, my presentation is going to demonstrate what EAs do and continue uh, to talk about de facto annexation and the dangers that that presents people in the region. Now, the West Bank is actually pretty small. This is it on uh, superimposed onto a map of the UK. So just coming out of London, just a few hours up, perhaps up the A1, and you'll get to Peterborough. So only a few hours. That gives you a sense of, of, of how big it is. Now, why does this matter to us? Now, simply, there are vulnerable communities that need our support 
more than ever right now. And as you'll see, this is not only an ongoing issue, but something that has been made all the much worse by the coronavirus pandemic. So it's very urgent we act now. One of the people that I spoke to was a man called Tysir. Like millions and millions of people around the world, Tysir was forced to stay inside during the coronavirus pandemic. However, Tysir isn't just locked down because of coronavirus, but something else too. Something else that has been affecting him, in fact, for several years. Speaking to Tysir in February, he said to me, only gods can help me now. Tysir has seven children and a wife at home, but instead he's forced to stay here. This is his place of work. This is a place for animals. He's a farmer. The building on the left-hand side, you can see my cursor behind the fence, was destroyed by illegal Israeli settlers. Now, these are Israeli civilians that live inside the West Bank. This was destroyed last year in July. Tysir rebuilt it, only to be destroyed again by the same group of individuals that live in the settlement behind him, Lashem. Tysir's son is with him too, and his wife brings them both food regularly. He tells me that he's locked down not just because of the pandemic, but 24-7 in fear the illegal settlers will come, destroy everything, steal his land, because they have told him that in fact it's theirs to take. Now we can see here he had around 800 meters squared for his animals, a fence was built through, now he has around 60 meters squared for his sheep. And this is equated to around £70,000 worth of income loss. Now, Jack has touched on this, but what and where are legal settlements? Now, in 1967, when Israel occupied the West Bank, winning territory in the Six-Day War from Jordan, since then, large numbers of Israeli civilians have moved into the West Bank and established illegal settlements. And you can see on the map on the right-hand side. Now, this land is intended to, be, to make up the future of the, of the state of Palestine. And around, I believe in 2019, there's around 132 settlements covering around 40% of the land of, of, of the West Bank. Now, who are settlers exactly? Well, as Jack said, there's over 500,000 um, illegal settlers living inside the West Bank. Um, now, the majority of these settlers are seeking a better quality of life um, and move to the West Bank because of the advantages uh, inside the West Bank over Israel. This movement of Israeli civilians has been facilitated with the political, military and financial support of the Israeli government. So, for example, housing has often been subsidised by, um, by the government, education, as well as uh, businesses receiving income tax breaks. This is a man on the photo of the left, a man called Abu Omar, who's very keen to show me a new settlement uh, uh, development near, near his home. Now, why does this matter? Why am I talking about illegal settlements and so on? Now, the majority of settlers do not cause harm um, or direct violence to Palestinians or Palestinian property. There are a number of settlers who are religious nationalists, believing that God promised them the greater land of Israel and see it their duty to live in it in these settlements. Lashem, the one behind Tysir's farm, is a religious nationalist settlement. Now, a small number of settlers do perpetrate violence against Palestinians, damaging lands, persons and their property. And you can see here on the right hand side from 2009 and 2018, the UN recorded nearly 3000 uh, incidents of violence. Um, and on the left here, you can see a heat map of where uh, those were taking place. Now, 
Fearing violence against him and his property, Tysir is forced to stay in these current conditions. You can see here he has beds. On the right-hand side, he's, he's got a television in there because he's been there all the time. It's got a fire because it was, it was very cold when I was there in February. And at the back there, you can see myself and my team, as he was showing me, his animals. This is where, you know, his animals are brought here. They live, they slaughter, and he feels that if he leaves, this will be taken away from him as his livelihood. And this is another view. So what has this got to do with occupation? Um, surely you could say this is a domestic matter between settlers and Palestinians, perhaps. Well, the answer is that the Israeli military do not always deploy in advance to protect Palestinians from settler violence, whereas settlers are often heavily protected. And this is very important because under international law, Israel as the occupying power has extensive obligations. Now, to unpack that further, I turn more towards international law. Protected persons are entitled in all circumstances to be humanely treated and shall be protected, especially against all acts of violence or threats. And this is Article 27 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, 1949, which was adopted by the international community to limit the human suffering in times of armed conflict. And this is a key source or part of international humanitarian law, otherwise known as the laws of armed conflict, which applies in situations of occupation. So what do we gather from this, from this article? Simply that Palestinians are protected persons living under uh, occupation, and therefore Israel must administer the West Bank for the benefit of the local protected population and have responsibility of ensuring law and order. Okay, so that's harassment, violence, and so on. But what about settlements? What does international law say about settlements? The occupying power should not deport or transfer parts of its own civilian population into the territory it occupies, as Article 49. This simply means that settlements are prohibited. So why, why is this happening? How is the Israeli government continuing to do this? Now, Jack has touched on this, and I'll expand on this a little bit further. Now, on a political level, the Israeli government often refers to occupied West Bank or to the West Bank as disputed territory. Now, on a political level, and therefore that humanitarian law does not apply. So therefore, settlements uh, can be are, are legal. Now, the reason this political rhetoric is used is that they argued that the disputed territories, when they were seized from Jordan in the 1967 uh, war, were never actually recognized as the legal sovereignty or, or the supreme power. So essentially, Jordan never had it, so Israel never really occupied it. This is, however, the, the vast international community disagree with this. Um, and you can look to the advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice, as Jack mentioned, um, the UK government, the Irish government, and the EU all disagree that uh, with this claim they believe that humanitarian law does apply and that this is a situation of occupation. Now, what is important is that the Israeli government is often accused of using the disputed territories uh, arguments in order to legitimate and further the settlement expansion since 1967. And this is one reason why we can describe it as a de facto annexation. Okay, what does annexation mean? So annexation is the acquisition of territory through the use of force, whether realized in practice and in fact, or, or known as de facto, or through the formal extension of authority by law, so du jour. 
Now, both are strictly prohibited under international law. And now, as Jack said, earlier this year, the Israeli coalition government announced plans to formally annex large parts of the occupied West Bank. This would have meant displacing around 50,000 Palestinians or one third of the land of the West Bank. This was met with opposition around the world, but was backed by the US. Now, this didn't happen from mid-August, and I think we can talk about this a bit later, as there was a peace deal or a normalization between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. So the annexation plans were called off. So great, there's no annexation. Unfortunately, that's not the answer. Now, the UN Special Rapporteur has recently said that, according to the UN, this is, Israel has continuously entrenched its de facto annexation of the West Bank by imposing intentionally irreversible changes to occupied territory prescribed by international humanitarian law. So this is the settlements as a de facto annexation. Israel has not declared an official annexation, but the very fact that the settlements are on the ground are creating a situation of annexation. So this is strictly, if it is so strictly prohibited, how is this happening exactly? Now, as Jack mentioned, he, he explained what an occupation is. So on the left, we have characteristics of an occupation and on the right, annexation. Essentially, this is the longest military occupation in history. Um, so it's such a, a long occupation that the reality is far from the textbook definition of occupation. Now, if you look to the left, I did say before that on a political level, the Israeli government claimed that they are disputed, that international humanitarian law doesn't apply. But when we look on a legal level, when you look at what the Israeli Supreme Court is doing, they do apply humanitarian law because it's an occupation. So humanitarian law applies because occupation is a legal thing. Now, if you direct your attention to the right, this occupation has been going on for so long. It's a situation which has been described as indefinite, that it has the characteristics of a de facto annexation. So permanency, illegality, and, the po and a population under a new state's law. Okay, so what effect does this have on Palestinians? What is the result of this? For people like Taisir, the creeping de facto annexation results living in a dual legal system. On one hand, he is under military rule, under humanitarian law, supposedly temporary and legal. But on the other hand, this looks increasingly more like a de facto annexation day to day. That by the extension and application of Israeli law to the West Bank, that gives privileged legal treatment to settlers. So not only this is a dual legal system, but a discriminatory legal regime in which illegal settlers have an increased level of protection than Palestinians. Now, not all Israelis by no means agree with their government, not at all. Um, there have been protests against the annexation throughout the year that which continue to this day, as well as multiple human rights organizations inside Israel that are working against the occupation and the de facto annexation and any further formal annexation in the future. For example, as an ecumenical accompanier, we accompany human rights groups such as the Women in Black who march every Friday to end the occupation. I also got to accompany Bet Salem, an Israeli peace organization uh, with the monitoring of human rights violations who often who look into uh, settlement, uh, settler harassment 
um, and have cited in the past that the Israeli authorities do not do enough to prevent Israeli settlers from attacking Palestinians, their property and their lands. So as Jack went into this, we report on, on violations of international law and offer protective presence, but we also give advocacy presentations like this to raise awareness. We raise awareness and we tell the stories of people like Taisir to really show the reality of big lofty legal and political narratives like occupation and annexation and humanitarian law to show what the reality really is like on the, 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 the guiding principles of principled impartiality, which is not taking sides for, for either Palestinians or Israelis, but really using humanitarian law and human rights as the benchmark. Um, EAs come back from the West Bank and Israel um, and they tell these stories and they also campaign. So earlier this year, we had the No to Annexation campaign, which had a total reach of over 270,000 people, which is probably an, an underestimate apparently. And this saw EAs contacting their political representatives, faith leaders, um, doing social media, all of those things. Now, coming back to Taisir, coming back to the, the coronavirus pandemic, you would have thought perhaps that things maybe would have quietened down. By the start of the pandemic restrictions, the UN saw a nearly 80% increase in settler-related violence compared to the start of 2020. So this is by all means not going away for Palestinians living in the West Bank. So as I draw to an end, we need urgent action. There are things that we can all do to help the APPI and to help EAs at the moment. So I will share this uh, in the chat, but we encourage you to follow the APPI UK and Ireland on social media, sign up to the mailing list so you can um, find out of, um, actions that you can take and look out for the upcoming Olive Harvest campaign that will be coming out soon. Thank you very much. Matt, that was an excellent presentation. Um, thank you very much indeed, very clear. And thank you, Jack, also for yours. Um, two extremely powerful uh, and excellent um, presentations. And I'm now looking for um, you who are uh, the audience participating in this webinar to uh, send in your questions either on the Q&A um, or directly into the system where you are. Um, I'm going to begin with uh, an easy one just to get the conversation uh, started. Um, from someone who's applied to be uh, an ecumenical accompanier in um, in Israel-Palestine in 2021, and they're asking Jack, um, when do you hope to get things uh, get get the, the the program running again? It's a good question uh, because a lot of the local community are asking us the same question. Um, the truth is that we don't we don't know for sure. This uh, pandemic is unpredictable, and um, we did not expect. Uh, Israel to be the first country to enter a second lockdown because of uh, what has largely been a mishandling of, of the pandemic. So we do hope to have the possibility of internationals coming back in uh, after the winter where we see how the virus reacts uh, and how the population reacts to, um, to the pandemic uh, over the winter period. And so we're hoping hoping for a restart uh, this coming spring, but we have to adjust to uh, these events just like everyone else has and, and wait and, and see what happens. 
Okay, thank you very much. Um, let's get into some of the, uh, the, the, the more serious um, issues. Um, I have a question. What is it that allows the Israeli government to flout international law and how might that be changed? I, I guess, you know, that, that uh, Jack, you know, if you have uh, uh, a first go at that, then I'll ask Matt just to, to briefly add any comments he has. Well, like any legal system, if you have laws that are not enforced, they're not going to be followed. And although international law is tricky when it comes to enforcement, there is the possibility of enforcing it through a coalition of international pressure. And so far, there hasn't been any serious attempts by states, or certainly in the West, to have these laws enforced. And so I think our hope is that to try and educate um, people coming from all over the world who have uh, who come from countries that um, can really have a voice at the table when it comes to uh, this type of international pressure, um, to change that so that they do take steps to try and enforce the law and to promote a peaceful solution. I think oftentimes there's a misconception that this conflict is between two peoples, the Israelis and the Palestinians, but this is not the case. There are three parties to this conflict, Israelis, Palestinians, and the international community that have allowed the situation to happen or have oftentimes actively participated. Uh, very, just very briefly, we also know that there are certain countries that really call the shots um, when it comes to world politics, or at least have a, a stronger voice than others, mainly the US, but certain, certainly countries like the UK, uh, international bodies like the EU. And so we have an imbalance of power here when it comes to political allies. Therefore, the voice of EAPPI and others that advocate for international law is particularly important because if you do not follow international law in this situation, uh, you risk the sort of international law becoming irrelevant across the world and that would be incredibly dangerous. Okay, thank you for that. Um, Matt, just very briefly, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I would. I mean, I think from my experience, um, seeing um, international law being flouted in, in, in the way the question is, as Jack said, it is, a, it is an unbalanced conflict. I mean, international law is a toolbox, but unless, unless it is enforced, um, it's, it's not, it can be flouted, basically. And I believe that it's, it's, we need to encourage the international community and remind them that we all have uh, a legal, the states have a legal duty to recognize this situation if it is illegal. So yeah, that would be my answer. I've seen how unbalanced it can be and therefore international law without enforcement and accountability uh, can, be, can be violated. Okay, thanks. You know, here's a question that, um, that adds to the complexity. You know, it's clearly from a Christian who's asking, Israel claims in all sincerity that the land was promised to them by God, thus they have an indisputable right to the land. And they quote extensively from the Old Testament, uh, Bible and other Jewish texts to support this claim. How, how, how do you, as a, as a company, as respond to, to that kind of, uh, of view of scripture. Um, Matt, do you want to say something to start off with? Just briefly. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean, my response to that would be as an ecumenical company that it seems to me that borders aren't established by religious texts at the moment. Um, 
and Israel's right to exist has been recognized by the international community um, and also for the Palestinian state to be created. That would probably be my response to that. Good. Okay, thank you very much for that. Matt, um, Jack, do you want to add anything briefly? And There's lots of questions coming in. Yes, I, I don't think that, that any system that we have at the moment that allows one group of people to impose their religious interpretation over another is an effective way of living at peace. Um, but I would also say that there's a bit of a problem in the question because within Judaism, there isn't a, 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 an understanding that this is the correct interpretation. It's widely disputed uh, for, uh, for religious Jews as well. Therefore, there are many Jews who, who do not agree that, it's, that the land is given to, or at least that the uh, establishment of the state uh, of Israel has been in accordance to their religious beliefs. Thanks, you know, and certainly these aren't questions that you can, uh, you know, address in any, uh, with any seriousness, you know, in, uh, in a short webinar. Um, what's the, what is the COVID situation like in the West Bank and, and Gaza? Um, Jack first, and then I know that, that uh, Matt's uh, been over in the, the, the West Bank recently, so I'll come back to you, uh, Matt. You know, but Jack, what's the COVID situation like? I'll start with Gaza. Gaza has very few cases because it is essentially an open-air prison. Very few people go in and very few people come out. And so in a sense, it's been uh, more protected um, from the spread of the virus. There have been a few cases. Um, but not a serious spread. In the West Bank, it's slightly different um, because many of, uh, first of all, there were many tourists who were able to access certain areas of the West Bank and many Palestinians that work on the Israeli side. Uh, however, the COVID-19 situation uh, in its sort of severity changes from area to area in the West Bank. Uh, as, as we talked about in this presentation, checkpoints and other physical restrictions really sort of create isolated areas across the West Bank. So a city like Hebron uh, has the majority of coronavirus cases in the West Bank. Um, a lot of the, unfortunately, restrictions were not followed, uh, but also a lot of the medical assistance that is available to Palestinians is quite weak. And so they haven't been able to handle the situation the same way that other countries have. Uh, people are more concerned at the moment about their livelihood. This is the main concern that we hear from Palestinians who, generally speaking, uh, have a very, very low income. So uh, the cases are dropping in the West Bank, uh, but they remain sort of in, in hot spots, particularly in Hebron and the Nablus area. Yeah, and, and Hebron is a, a difficult enough place without having COVID on top of it. It's just... Uh... You know, absolute disaster, isn't it? Um, Matt, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I would add to my, obviously Jack being in Israel currently, he obviously knows the, the, the current COVID situation, but so I left, uh, we left the West Bank um, and we, we flew back from, from Tel Aviv airport um, uh, towards the end of March, so just, as the, just before the UK was going into lockdown. Um, and in the, in the week, perhaps, or so running, running up to that, in, in before we left the feeling that coronavirus was spreading it was it was quite bizarre to be honest and jack touched on that the the isolation um of people or living in the west bank um you we really got a sense that something was happening and people were looking to us going you know what was going on and it was increasingly 
uh, as we got nearer to the time when we when we had to leave that um yeah we knew it was time to go so yeah i mean i know that from people i still stay in contact with things like lockdown aren't particularly new like having to stay at home the restrictions on palestinians you know this isn't entirely new um but obviously this is this is an unprecedented situation um, and having visited gaza a, a couple a few years ago now in 2017 i can only imagine um what that would be like uh, for them for them living there and, and the fear of, of coronavirus on the outside perhaps okay thanks for that um and, and as well as the 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 covid uh, 19 crisis you know that that you also mentioned uh, i think and certainly in one of the presentations about um the destruction of the harvest particularly the destruction of olive uh, of olive trees um how much of that's actually going on? There's a question here asking about uh, the daily destruction of olive trees just before the harvest. What's the situation um, on the ground at the present moment? So in the absence of us being able to accompany uh, people as they olive harvest, we are running an advocacy campaign as EAPPI through the World Council of Churches and through our different national coordinated offices. And I encourage you to look that up. We are trying to maintain as much contact with people on the ground as the situation is happening. And as I'm speaking to you right now, I've received two notifications of settler harassment of olive harvesters um, that, is, that have happened uh, today. And so we're really seeing uh, an intense amount of cases. Since the beginning of this year, we have had almost 3,000 olive trees destroyed leading up to the olive harvest. And we expect that to intensify uh, over the next upcoming uh, weeks. I think in total we've had uh, around 600 people impacted by this destruction uh, of olive trees. Last year there were 6,800 olive trees that were destroyed as well. And so we're very concerned that with the absence of international protective presence that this is likely to increase. And uh, updates about this will be posted through the World Council of Churches or the different national coordinated offices. So I encourage you to see our fact sheets that's available there. There's going to be a webinar and more information. Thanks for that. You know, and, and just one supplementary, you know, that, that, that's being asked there about does the so-called peace accord with the United Arab Emirates, you know, is that a game changer in any sense of the word or is that, uh, you know, how do you interpret that as a, um, as an accompanier. Maybe Jack first and then Matt. That's a very big question because there's lots of different political influences to why that peace accord is, well, so-called peace accord has taken place. Uh, first of all, I think it's rather easy to, to sort of make peace or at least normalize relations with countries that you don't really have conflict with, is the first point. Uh, the second thing is we believe it to be sort of a saving face um, uh, move because of the failure to reach, uh, to failure to annex the territories due to uh, largely international uh, pressure. Um, it's a game changer perhaps for a few reasons. One is that it might cause other countries that had previously in the past boycotted any type of relations with Israel to engage again. It might be detrimental for the uh, uh, boycott, divestment and sanction movement that have attempted to advocate for countries to sanction Israel. So that might be a major game changer. And I think it's a major game changer for the Palestinian Authority because so far uh, their strategy or lack of um, has sort of assumed that this situation is going to continue the way it is. 
now this change should, uh, and I hope it does, force them to reassess the way that they're going to engage with their advocacy and with their attempts uh, to deal with the occupation. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Jack. Um, just in uh, 10 seconds, uh, Matt, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I would add that also that, as I, as I said in my presentation, the, the effects of the de facto annexation are still happening right now. Um, and regardless of whether there's a formal annexation coming anytime soon, things are happening on the ground as we speak. So yeah, it's, it's very important. Okay, here's a question that's probably for, <laughs> for me as the moderator. What is the position of Churches Together in Britain and Ireland with regard to the boycotts, disinvestment and sanctions campaign? And that's simply to say that CTBI is a collection, um, is a family of churches from lots of different traditions um, with lots of different beliefs. There, are, that there is no common uh, position on uh, on Israel-Palestine across the uh, British and Irish churches. Um, and what we seek to do is to give voice to, um, to lots of different, um, uh, different programs and, and so on, as we are tonight. Um, and, you know, we continue to offer opportunities to, to people to have voice across the spectrum of opinions. Um, just another question, you know, that, that uh, someone's asking about uh, how we can um, respond as a, a, on an individual or as a, a, on a, a kind of local church level. Um, you know, we've seen tremendous um, reaction to the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, for example, um, and that's where people are taking on individual um, acts of, of um, solidarity. Um, can we do that here, you know, in, in this situation of accompanying uh, uh, people in uh, Israel-Palestine? Start with Matt. Thanks very much. Yeah, I mean, that is such an important question. Um, and it's literally why we do these presentations as ecumenical companies, because it's incredibly important. At the same time, we are in a global unprecedented pandemic. Well, I know how difficult it is for political advocacy at this time, but it doesn't mean that we can't try every means possible. It's about contacting our local elected representatives, find out who they are, find out their position on Israel-Palestine and follow the campaigns of the EAPPI. The No to Annexation campaign was a very effective global campaign that united lots of people against the annexation. Uh, I believe that the, the Harvest campaign will do a similar thing, uh, but there is a role for everyone to play. I know how difficult it is at the moment in the political, political environment, but yes, all those things and, and using the media, following uh, local Israeli and Palestinian peace groups to find out what's going on, things like that. Okay, thanks. You know, Jack, how do you feel about uh, about individual um, responses and how we can uh, be in solidarity? I think it's absolutely key to helping build the blocks to change the situation here, but I'm rather cautious. Uh, as a Palestinian of giving any sense of marching orders or suggestions to context that I'm not necessarily very familiar with, which is why I'm happy Matt went first. Um, but I do think that this is a situation that always requires continuous engagement and that there are plenty of Palestinian uh, and international partners, and Israeli of course, on the ground who are willing to assist individuals with their sort of journey of figuring out how and what they want to do, whether that's providing information, advice, or support. So I would encourage anyone who's considering to 
to to further their activity in this issue, to do so and know that, there will, that that will mean a lot to people like myself uh, and uh, Taysir and other Palestinians who are, are living in the heart of this situation here. Good. Okay. You know, and and this is a question that really um, builds on on that that um, that response that you've just given uh, by asking how hopeful can we be of the growing anti-settlement movement within Israel changing the political situation. I, I, sorry. May I answer this? Yes, of course. Please. Uh, sorry. Um, I think that there's a, a false assumption in the question. I don't think that there's an anti-settlement se um, sentiment uh, in Israeli society. I think that polling shows the exact opposite, that Israelis are increasingly becoming supportive of the settlement project. Um, there are strong voices still against it, but those are shrinking. Um, so all polling data suggests that over the past decade, the settlements um, the support of settlements has increased. So um, unfortunately, I'm not hopeful in, 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 from that angle. Okay, Matt, uh, do you have anything you want to add to that? I mean, Jack obviously has eyes and ears much closer to the ground than I do, but from my experience, having spoken to a breadth of uh, opinions with inside, inside is, Israeli society, there is there is a left wing. There are peace movements. These all, all these things exist. There, yes, there is a shrinking civil society, a shrinking space for civil society in Israel, but it exists, and we need to support uh, the local peace organisations and take note of the of the protests that are happening in Israel at the moment. Okay, we're coming uh, towards the end of our time. Um, I just want to, to say something, you know, I mean, two uh, excellent uh, presentations. A lot of people will be uh, thinking about the possibility of, of being an accompanier. Um, Jack, first, um, what's it looking like um, for 2020? Particularly, we're being asked about those who signed up and were given places. I mean, I should also say, you know, and maybe you want to comment on this, Jack, that um, EAPPI, of course, it, uh, it is uh, an international program through the World Council of Churches. There are people from uh, many, many countries around the world. And part of the experience, I'm sure Matt can comment uh, on this, you know, is that you meet lots of people from different countries. Where are we um, as we move forward? You know, that, that um, well, the people who signed up for this last uh, round of, of, um, of accompanying, will they get picked up and then get people back into, um, you know, into applying? What's the story? So, um from the Jerusalem office, we're not involved at all in the recruitment of decision-making when it comes to uh, ecumenical accompaniers. And so that's probably best to refer to the uh, Quakers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who are responsible. However, um, we do need accompaniers. And so anyone who's still willing and still wants to come, as far as the Jerusalem office is concerned, uh, we will need people uh, available the minute that that is made possible. Yeah, so the minute that the, 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 the COVID allows uh, accompaniers to, to get back and that there are international travel and so on is allowed, then that's when we need people back on the ground. That's good. Um, Matt, you know, what, what about you? You know, j just say a word about, uh, about your own experience, you know, of being an accompanier and, and what you feel it's given to you as a person 
um, as well as the, you know, the, the wider political situation. Thank you very much. I mean, yeah, absolutely. The experience of ecumenical companies is, you know, and the story that we then tell is, you know, is crucial to the role. Um, for me, it was an incredibly rich, um, interesting and uh, really thorough, I'd say, experience of, of what it is like um, to, to be in Israel and, and to live in the West Bank and to live under military occupation. I think for me, the crucial thing, the most interesting thing was getting to meet so many different people, so many people with political views that I was really surprised at, that the variety, it's not, as Jack says, just Israel versus Palestine or anything like that. There's a lot of people in this situation who, who want to say things and you know, have their own thoughts and opinions. For me, it was moving beyond academia, it was moving beyond the charity work that I'd previously done. It was beyond the news and the media and things like that. It was getting to know real people, their lives, um, and then having a role to play as I do now to be able to tell their stories to you guys like this. And of course, I think one of the things, you know, that when you do speak to Palestinians, they say, you know, when you're able, please do come on a pilgrimage, you know, come and stay with us. Don't just be a tourist walking through, come and stay and, and, and actually um, share with us and, and listen as well as, uh, as uh, you know, offer things, you know. And I think that's really important that, um, that, that local congregations and dioceses and synods and so on actually pick that message up, you know, that Palestinians also need financial support through their products, through all the things, you know, that are, are going on all the time. Um, but your presence uh, is always, and your prayers is always very much um, um, part of that. Linda from the Quakers says, yes, we are in touch with all who offer to serve as EAs in 2020 and they will get out sometime. Um, when that sometime is, of course, you know, none of us can say. Um, it's now just after eight o'clock and uh, it's time for us to wind up the, um, the, the webinar. I'm sorry, there have been a number of questions that we haven't been able to get to. Um, my apologies that we haven't been able to get into them. Some of them are huge questions that would have taken over um, the, the whole webinar, you know, and maybe that's something that we should think about for another evening. Um, I just want to say thanks to, to Jack uh, and to Matt for two brilliant presentations. Um, this presentation has been recorded. I'm sure it will be shown in, in a number of other places and used uh, by the Quakers. One final, final word, and that's to say how much CTBI appreciates the partnership uh, that we have with the uh, with Quakers in, in Britain uh, on the ecumenical accompaniment program in Palestine and Israel. Um, that's a program that we will continue to support and we look forward to deepening our partnership. So thanks to everyone who has participated. Thanks to Jack, thanks to Matt, thanks to all of you who have been on the call this evening. Um, have a good evening and stay safe. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. The Truth to Power podcast is produced by Churches Together in Britain and Ireland. The music is by Nikolai Heidlis, used under a